0: This morning, I'm going to ask you, please, to open your Bibles to the Book of Galatians. And lately, uh, the the uh, sermon selection has been a combination of the Spirit's guidance and what I remember. So that's what led me here, and uh, it's appropriate that it did so because it's about the Spirit's guidance. It's about walking in the Spirit. And uh, something I've been thinking about lately, uh, how do you walk in the spirit when certain, when you're not the same as you are used to being, you know, how do you, it changes things for you. It proposes new challenges. So it's always good to think about trusting the Lord in new ways and what that might mean for me. And I'm sure that's that's true for all of us. But uh, I'd like to start reading in, in Galatians 5, well, let's say verse 13 through verse 18, but my focus is going to be on verses 16 through 18. And then, you know, Lord willing, maybe we'll look at the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit in the coming weeks. because This is all one section beginning in verse 16 through the end of chapter 5. <clears throat> but beginning in verse 13, we read, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty... Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and I think the ESV has there the, the flesh flesh is desires are against the spirit, perhaps. Um, and then the spirit against the flesh. I think that's a little better way of taking it because in the first part of that statement, he says that uh, the flesh, its desires are against the spirit. And then the assumption is in the next part of it, that the spirit's desires are against the flesh. There's an ellipsis there where you have to fill in the verb. And lust is a negative term. The spirit doesn't do that. Right? Uh, but it does have desires that are against the flesh. So I think the ESV, I think, is the one that I read that, that uh, translated it that way. So probably it might be better to read it. For the the flesh. Uh, the flesh's desires, or the flesh sets its desires against the spirit, <clears throat> or the, the flesh's desires are against the spirit, and the uh, spirits are against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So we're going to try and understand verses 16 through 18 there. And before we do that, of course, I always feel a a pretty desperate need to pray. Uh, So let's do that. Holy Father, I do thank you For your great love for us, I thank you that uh, you gave your son Jesus Christ to be the wrath ending sacrifice for our sins, that you raised him from the dead, that he is seated at your right hand where he ever lives to intercede for all of us who have put our faith in him to save us by your grace and for your glory. We're so thankful. We're thankful this morning for your omniscience, that you know all things, your wisdom, that we don't have to worry that there's anything in our lives that you're not aware of and that you're not having the best possible plans for, for our good and for your glory. You are an all-knowing, all-wise God. Nothing catches you by surprise. Nothing is outside of your will and your plan. Nothing can happen apart from your gracious plan for us. Help us to remember that as we have worshiped you this morning and thought about your omniscience and your wisdom, how important it is to know these things about you. And so we call upon you as the God of knowledge and wisdom uh, through the power of your spirit to give us knowledge and wisdom. As we look into your word, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit to that end, that you would help us to understand the things that we need to understand from these verses today, that you would drive them deep into our hearts and minds and that we would become more like Christ as a result. That we would better magnify you in the world around us, be better witnesses for you. We ask these things for your glory and for our good, and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Here's a a Christian named Marius Victorinus who was converted converted to Christ in about the year 355 A.D. And he wrote this. The whole essence of the gospel is to think according to the spirit, to live according to the spirit, to believe according to the spirit, to have nothing of the flesh in one's mind and acts and life. That means having no hope in the flesh. And I think he may be right in saying that in fact, he is right in saying that we, we must have no hope in the flesh and we should certainly have as a goal to have nothing of the flesh in our minds or acts or lives as he puts it. But I can't help but think that he was not being altogether realistic there. Um, after all, he made it sound as though the gospel rids us of any and all influence of the flesh. But that isn't what Paul teaches in this passage that we just read. He says the opposite, as a matter of fact. Um, He pictures a continual battle in our lives with the flesh. Um, He assumes that in this life we'll always have the flesh present with us and that we will have to battle it constantly, even though we are constantly offered victory through the gospel. For it's through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have been given the Holy Spirit and are therefore never alone in the battle. Right? We have aid always. And this is why I think Paul says what he says in verse 16 when he says, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, here Paul is actually giving both a command and a promise. The command in the first half of the verse is where Paul says, walk in the Spirit. That is a command. It's, in other words, he's not making a suggestion. You know, it would be really good if you learned to walk in the Spirit. It would be better for you. No, he's commanding believers to walk in the Spirit. It's something we must do. It's what God demands that we do. But Not only does he issue this as a command, but he makes use of a present tense verb or present tense command. And he he often does that to stress something that you must continually do. Uh, A command given in this present tense is, is something that is pictured as an ongoing thing that you must constantly do, continually do. So the command is something like this. You must be constantly walking in the Holy Spirit. This is the way you must live your life, you might say, walking in the Spirit. That should be your habit, what you strive to do every single day. And of course, when he speaks of walking in the Spirit, he's just making use of a very familiar biblical metaphor for living one's life. You can see this in the Old Testament Psalms and so forth, uh, that there are two paths. There's the path of the wicked and the path of the righteous. And the righteous person walks the righteous path, and the wicked person walks the wicked path, and so forth. And and it's just a metaphor for living your life. And we use it the same way. Uh, we derive it from the Bible when we talk about a person's Christian walk. We mean his or her Christian life, right? And that's the way he's using the word here. It's simply another way of saying that we should live our lives in the power of the Spirit or in submission to the spirit. That's what it means to walk in the spirit. That rather than submitting to the flesh, the lust of the flesh, we're submitting to the spirit, encountering those things. Rather than right, living uh, our lives in such a way that we let the flesh overpower us, <laughs> we walk in the power of the spirit in order to conquer the lust of the flesh. That's the concept here in this verse. We have to remember that earlier in the epistle, Paul had already reminded the Galatians of the crucial role of the Spirit in their lives. Uh, For example, he reminded them that they had received the Spirit through faith and not by works. And so that's going to help shape how we understand what it means to walk in the Spirit. It's going to be a faith, not works walk, right? He said, for example, in Galatians 3, verses 3 through 6, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if, it, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. There he's talking about justification that Abraham was declared righteous by God, not because he had a righteousness of his own, but uh, he was accounted righteous through faith in God. Notice there, uh, if uh, we're to walk in the Spirit, what is is Paul assuming based on what he said previously? Walking in the Spirit means trusting in the Holy Spirit and not in ourselves, in our own efforts. We're never going to be successful battling the flesh if we're trusting the flesh. (laughs) We've got to be trusting the Holy Spirit. He says uh, later on in Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And of course, uh, He's challenged them that having received the Spirit by faith, they have this weird idea that somehow they'll continue in their Christian walk without the need of the Spirit, and instead trusting in themselves. That's ridiculous. We can't be saved apart from the work of the Spirit, and we can't be sanctified apart from the work of the Spirit. So, Paul has at least implied earlier that walking in the Spirit means walking by faith in His power, rather than by trusting In our own efforts, and this will become even more clear when we get to verse 17. But for now, I want to see that Paul also reminded them earlier in the epistle that they had experienced an intimate relationship to God as their father through the working of the Spirit within them. So, when he's now saying walk in the Spirit, there are concepts that should be in their mind about what that means already, is what I'm saying, from earlier in the passage. And probably from a lot of other teaching of Paul, but we're sticking just to these, this context for now. Uh, earlier in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6, Paul wrote, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Father. So, walking in the Spirit is going to also imply this deep trust in God our Father by which we cry out to Him as His children for help. Right? That would be part of walking in the Spirit. Here in chapter 5, Paul is picking up again on the importance of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. He's teaching us we must depend continually upon the Spirit as we live our daily lives because only in this way will we realize the victory we have in Christ, as the following promise indicates. Remember, I said there's a command and a promise. The command's in the first part of the verse, and the promise comes in the second half of the verse, where Paul says, And you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's interesting here that in the Greek text Paul uses a double negative. Um, and in, in Greek, double negatives work differently than a double negative in English. If, if there were double, a double negative in English here and it were literally translated, it would say something like, you shall not, not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But that would mean that you would fulfill the lust of the flesh if you were to walk in the spirit. And that is the very opposite of what Paul means here. Uh, so we can't take it literally, those two negatives in English, or are, it are, are, turns into a positive, right? Right. Uh, but, but in Greek, when you put two negatives, you're meaning to emphasize the negative. And so we could take it something like this. You shall no, by no means fulfill the lust of the flesh. Or what, if you're walking in the spirit consistently, like I say, you will never ever fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's a promise. Well, that promise gets ultimately fulfilled when we're glorified. Paul will teach in Romans 8, right? <laughs> that we're, because he's also assuming this is going to be a constant battle and hence the need to continually do this. He's not assuming we're going to get perfect in this life. We know from elsewhere, he teaches that's not the case, from Philippians, where Paul says that mature believers understand that we don't arrive in this life. I count, not myself, he says, to have apprehended, right? Uh, he looks to the future resurrection for that. But we can have a consistent victory, right? Even if not a perfect victory all the time. We can have consistent victory. And we have a promise of that here, I believe. But only if we're consistently walking in the Spirit can we expect this. I think Martin Luther is helpful in explaining the basic meaning of Paul's phrase, lust of the flesh, when he says, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, when he writes this, and I'm quoting now, These these scholastics take the lust of the flesh to mean carnal lust. True, believers are uh, too are are tempted with carnal lust. Even the married are not immune to carnal lust. Men set little of value upon that which they have and covet what they do not have. As the poet says, the things most forbidden we always desire and things most denied we seek to acquire. I do not deny, Luther says, that the lust of the flesh includes carnal lust. But it takes in more. It takes in all the corrupt desires with which believers are more or less infected as pride, hatred, covetousness, impatience. In other words, we shouldn't restrict this, this to the lust you associate maybe with sexual immorality because in our language, that's when we think of lust, that's often what we mean, right? He's talking about desires of the flesh, wicked desires of the flesh that, however they manifest themselves. And of course, pride would be, a good thing to mention there, as Luther did, because, as I've said many times, that's past, that's a root sin, that's at the bottom of every other sin you're ever going to commit, right? But what a promise, then, is held out to us, a promise of victory over the sinful desires of the flesh, even over things like pride, covetousness. That's if we're obeying the command to walk in the Spirit. If we think for a second, for example, that we can overcome pride just by trying hard or to be humble, we are going to fail. We're going to only overcome pride by walking in the Spirit. And that means, as we've seen, trusting the Spirit's power to enable us to overcome pride. Crying out to our Heavenly Father, Abba, Father, fill me with your Spirit and the ability to overcome pride in my life. Only as we're doing that and seeking to rely on the power of the Spirit will we ever overcome something like pride. That's the point. Now, the reason for both the command and the promise given here is found in the next verse. In verse 17, where he says, for the flesh lusts or desires against, and here there's a present tense, it's constantly lusting against or desiring against, right? The Spirit. In other words Paul saying the flesh is constantly at odds with the spirit. Why am I giving this command with this promise? I'm giving this command with this promise because you are living in a situation in which the flesh is constantly going against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. He says, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. So here Paul describes a conflict in which every Christian is engaged. He said, I want you to be continually walking in the spirit. Why? Because you're in a continual battle that requires you to continually walk in the spirit. And that battle is characterized by the the flesh going against the spirit and the spirit going against the flesh. That's the battle that we're in. He gave us this command because we're in a battle and he gave us the promise also because we're in a battle. And he wants us to know we can have victory in this battle. Oh, perfect victory comes when we're glorified in the resurrection. But that doesn't mean we can't have victory. That that doesn't mean we can have no victory. It doesn't mean we can't have consistent victory, even if we can expect to falter here and there, right? Paul believes that we can, or else why give such a promise and a command? But exactly what is the flesh that Paul speaks of here? Well, he frequently uses the word uh, to refer to, as the Freiburg lexicon puts it, a sinful and sensual power tending towards sin and opposing the Spirit's working. Uh, in Romans, Paul might call it indwelling sin. <laughs> it's that still remains in us, right? That there's, it's not gone. Completely. In this sense, it refers to the natural bent towards sinning that remains in us even after our conversion. It's a remnant of the old natural man, and it is opposed to the work of the spirit in our hearts and lives. Indeed, our flesh leads us to depend upon ourselves rather than upon the spirit for the strength we need to live rightly for Christ. It even tricks us that way. That's what was happening to the Galatians they'd been tricked by their prideful flesh into thinking that having begun in the spirit, somehow they could go on trusting in the flesh. Paul's saying, that's crazy. You can't do that, right? That's my, of course, uh, way of putting it. He didn't say it was crazy. He just said they were foolish, which is probably a much stronger word. As one commentator put it, the flesh is Paul's term for everything aside from God in which one places his final trust. That might be a good way of thinking about it. But what does Paul mean when he tells the Galatians that due to this conflict between the spirit and the flesh, the result is that you do not do the things that you wish. He says, there's this conflict, and as a result, you do not do the things that you wish. Does he mean by that that we do not do the good things that we desire under the spirit's leading because of the flesh? Or does he mean that we do not do the sinful things we desire to do in the flesh because of the spirit within us. Those are two different things. And either could be true in this context, and I would argue that both are true. That that Paul most likely means both things because of what he's just said leading up to that comment. Uh, I think Edie Burton may have gotten it right when he wrote that it refers to, quote, both flesh and spirit in the sense that the flesh opposes the spirit that men may not do what they will in accordance with the mind of the spirit. And the spirit opposes the flesh that they may not do what they will after the flesh. Does the man choose evil? The spirit opposes him. Does he choose good? The flesh hinders him. We're constantly in the state of, When our flesh wants to do something, we don't do what we want if we're trusting the Spirit. When the Spirit wants us to do something, when we want to do what the Spirit leads us to do, the flesh is trying to make us not want to do that, right? So we're constantly in this battle. What Paul is indicating here, I think, is he understands what we're like. He's writing as somebody who's been there, right? He understands the difficulty of temptation within us and the conflict we always feel. He's being very clear and upfront about it. And he says, this is going to be your continual experience. This, this is going to be your life. But that doesn't mean you're given up to a life of deceit. You can always walk in the Spirit and have victory. That's what he's teaching. And so we have the battle described for us, but Paul doesn't want us to move to any further Uh, or he doesn't want to move on, rather, to any further description as when he goes on to speak of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit later on, beginning in verse 19, without one more important uh, word about the necessity of the Spirit's work. He says in verse 18, but if you are led, and there's the present tense again, but if you're consistently being led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Where did that come from? Well, if you've read the whole epistle, you know where it came from, right? This is They've been teaching that you have to obey the law, at least in some respects, in order to be saved. Remember in Galatia, there were these Judaizers coming around saying, well, to the Gentiles, to be a Christian, you have to really become a Jew first and you have to be circumcised. And what Paul is teaching is that is placing a work, right? It's placing something in addition to faith trusting in Christ that you must do to be saved. And he said, if you do that, you undermine the whole gospel and you make it salvation by works. Because Paul says you can't put even just one work, even a good work, as the thing you must do in addition to faith to be saved or you've eradicated faith. And so, and if once you say you have to obey one part of the law to be saved, you're really open to yourself to have to obey it all. Anyway, nobody can do that. And part of the argument he makes in, in Galatians is that the law has been a tutor in order to right, show us our need for Christ, show us that we cannot be righteous in ourselves. So it's impo- he's bringing this up for a reason. It's a part of the overall theme of the epistle. It's part of a problem that they've been facing there. But again, he uses that present tense verb. And I think here he's just... to giving us another way of describing our walking in the Spirit when he said we're being led by the Spirit. If we're constantly being led by the Spirit, that's another way of saying we're constantly walking in the Spirit because that's what it means to walk in the Spirit, to submit to the Spirit, right? To be led by the Spirit instead of the flesh. And so I think we can also see that Paul is emphasizing both God's sovereign role and our own responsibility here. The Spirit must lead us, but we must submit. Both of those things have to be true. The spirit must lead us, but we must allow ourselves to be led. We must not resist the spirit, which is what our flesh, that indwelling sin in us, wants us to do, right? We must not do that. William Hendrickson is helpful here when he cites B.B. Warfield in his commentary. He, He writes this, Warfield has said very aptly, it is the Holy Spirit's part to keep us in the path and to bring us at length to the goal. But it is we who tread every step of the way, our limbs that grow weary with the labor, our hearts that faint, our courage that fails, our faith that revives our sinking strength, our hope that instills new courage into our souls as we, t- as we toil, he says, over the steep ascent And what Hendrickson goes on to say, being led by the Holy Spirit to be fully effective implies that one allows himself to be led. As to the interrelation of these two factors, the believer's self-activity and God's, the Holy Spirit's leading, Paul's own spirit-inspired statement cannot be improved upon. And then he cites Philippians 2, 12 and 13, which says, with fear and trembling continue to work out your own salvation, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, God is sovereignly working in us what we are working out. But we cannot work out our salvation unless he's working it in us. This is complete dependence upon him and his sovereign grace and the work of his spirit. So being led by the spirit is not a situation in which we let go and let God, as some people have put it in the past. On the contrary, being led by the Spirit involves our humble submission to Him. Constantly. It involves our our actively submitting to Him. It involves a choice every day. And this is true of all Christians. As Paul later taught the Roman believers in Romans 8, in verses 5 through 9, he wrote, "...for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh," but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity or hatred against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And then further on, Paul says in verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And what's he saying there? He's saying, a true believer, and this kind of fits in with what we talked about last week when we talked about, it was assurance of salvation we talked about last week. (laughs) And, uh, And that one of the ways we can be assured of our salvation is is that we see the Spirit working in us. We see a changed life. And what Paul's saying here, that should be characteristic of true believers. What do they look like? People are being led by the Spirit. I think Paul would say, show me somebody that's constantly being led by the flesh and never being led by the Spirit, and I'll show you somebody who's not a believer. Be believers, have the Spirit of Christ, he says. Again, he's he's not talking about perfect living. He makes that perfectly clear elsewhere. He's talking about consistency of a kind right growth some people imagine that growth wrongly to be if you were going to graph it I guess you would go left to right so I'll do it backwards for me if you were going to graph it and you had a graph a lot of Christians think that the Christian life is steady growth like this upward if you if you if pay attention to the Bible it's not like that it's more like this go up you go up, you go back down, and, but over time, you're going upward, right? There's all kinds of pitfalls along the way, and your graph is not going to be a perfect line to heaven, <laughs> right? It's going to be a choppy-looking thing, but it gets there. It gets the glorification, and not because of our efforts, but because of the Holy Spirit. So he's talking about when he uses these present tenses, consistency. What characterizes you in your daily walk? Desiring to follow the Spirit, which is another way of submitting to the Word of God, which was inspired by the Spirit. Remember what Paul said to Timothy in Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So this also, it also means that we necessarily follow the word of God consistently. Paul adds here in Galatians 5.18 that those of us who are continually being led by the spirit are not under the law and have already hinted at some of what that means. In what sense are we not under the law? In order to answer it a little better, I'll go back to some of those key passages I've already alluded to. For example, Paul had already connected the idea of seeking justification by works of the law with trusting in works of the flesh. So when he's using the language of law and flesh here, he's using language he's already used in a very particular way. He says in Galatians 3, 2 and 3, this I only want to learn from you, Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit, are you being made perfect by the flesh? Notice there. The person who thinks that somehow they can, having begun in the spirit, be made perfect or mature or be what God wants them to be by trusting in the flesh is a person who's denying the gospel. It's throwing it away. And so we may say that we're not under the law here in five hundred eighteen in the sense that we do not need to trust in our own fleshly efforts to keep the law in order to be saved or sanctified. We will never have victory over the flesh if it's the flesh we're trusting to give us that victory. We've already lost. The battle. Because the battle's between the flesh and the spirit. Paul also taught that we're not no longer in the law as a prison guard that keeps us locked up in sin or as a tutor that leads us to Christ by showing us our sin and thus our need for Christ. And I alluded to this before, but now I want to show you where it is in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 21. He says, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. So he's going to talk about why the law was actually given, and it wasn't to give us life by keeping it. He's making that very clear. That wasn't the intent of the law. It wasn't your guide to eternal life. It was your guide to the one who gives you eternal life by showing that you can never do it on your own. That's what he's going to say. He says, but the scripture has confined all under sin. It's, it's like it's put us in a jail. It's like the law, in a sense, is our jailer. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now here he's not—he's describing the purpose of the law and the life of each and every individual who knows the law, right? The law shows us that we're sinners, trapped in sin. We're bound by it, and in that way, the law becomes almost like a prison guard, right? But the law is also like a teacher. Because in showing us that we're trapped in sin and incapable of overcoming that, it shows us that we must look outside ourselves for the answer, and that is to Christ. It's to show us how sinful we are, to show us our need for Christ, that the law is there. That's why it was given, and that's what its function is in the life of every person, right, who has been condemned by it. And so when he says, if we're being led by the Spirit, we're not under the law... We're no longer under that condemnation, constantly. We're no longer feeling trapped by sin with the law constantly pointing it out and reminding us that there's no hope, right? Because unless it's in God. And once we' found that hope in God and trusted in Him, the law takes on a whole different meaning to us. It doesn't scare us anymore. And it doesn't teach us what it once taught us in the same way. We've come to faith in Christ now. The law is a very good thing. It has a very good purpose. And that purpose wasn't as your guidebook to eternal life. It was as your teacher to lead you to the one who can give you eternal life. To point out your need for that one, Christ. So that you can see it clearly. I think there are other ways that Paul has indicated that we're not under the law, uh, previously, but for now, I think I'll just end on that point. Um, we definitely, we did see earlier in our reading in verses 13 and 14. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty; only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. And then he says, for all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean then? Paul says, actually, those of us who have come to faith in Christ and who are not under the law in the way we once were, we're the ones actually keeping it. Because the point of it is, right, that we love each other. And we're doing that. So we do end up keeping the law in a sense although he's made it clear that like circumcision is no longer required so there are these civil and ceremonial aspects of the law that are gone like circumcision we don't make sacrifices anymore or anything like that but there, there's this moral aspect of the law that still remains summed up in at least toward one another loving one another And so the purpose of the law in that sense is fulfilled in us and lived out by us through victory in this battle which can only be won by the Spirit's enabling power. I think perhaps it would be good to end with a quote from Timothy George who offers help in applying Paul's message here. He says this, The conflict between flesh and spirit and not only with reference to sexual temptations as Luther pointed out, it is intense and unrelenting. One of the greatest dangers in the Christian life is complacency, the temptation to imagine oneself invulnerable and hence impervious to the allurement of the flesh. Yet Paul's words were addressed to the entire believing community. No Christians are so spiritually strong and mature that they need not heed this warning, but neither are they or any, so weak or vacillating that they cannot be free from the tyranny of the flesh through the power of the Spirit. Amen to that. No matter how mature you may be in your faith, you are not beyond this battle with the flesh. And if you imagine yourself to be mature and think you are beyond this battle with the flesh, you've only proven that you're not yet mature. Because mature people think the way Paul just said. Or if you're somebody who thinks, well, I can never have victory. I, I just I have these besetting sins and I just can't have victory. I... Yes, you can. You have a promise that you can. It may not be perfect victory. You, your graph may have little <laughs> divots in it there. But victory is attainable. You may have periods of victory when you fall back in and periods of victory when you fall back in the sin. But those periods of victory have proven something to you. Victory can be had. And each one of those periods of victory are evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in your life, that you are walking in the Spirit, that you're being led by the Spirit, even if sometimes you fail in that. Because no one can have any victory at all. Apart from the Spirit, if you're having victory at all, it's evidence that the Spirit's at work in your life. So be encouraged. Don't always look at the bad and fail to see the good. Paul said to the Romans, "People who suppress the truth and unrighteousness deny God," but he said they're also. They were unthankful. In other words, it's a horrible sin to commit to be unthankful to God. And if we allow ourselves to see only the negative in ourselves, only the failures of the flesh, and we never allow ourselves to see the victories the Spirit has given us, we fail to give Him the glory and the thanks for those victories, and that is a sin. It's a sin to do that. So while you're in this battle, Don't let the flesh get that victory from you. Don't don't let yourself fall into that negative attitude that only ever sees what's wrong with you and never sees what the Spirit's doing. You've lost the bottle when you do that. Don't let that happen. By the grace of God, look at your life and say, I may have all these faults, but I have this little piece of victory here, and the Bible tells me even just a teeny victory is only possible by a miraculous work in the spirit in my life. I'm going to hang on to that. I'm going to hang on to that. And I'm going to say, I can have more of that. (laughs) And I can have it more consistently. And I'm going to quit looking at only what's wrong with me. And to start to see the good that God's doing in me. And give him the glory he deserves. The devil wants to rob God of that glory. And he wants to rob you of the peace and joy that come from giving it to him. Don't let it happen in your battle with sin. Let's pray. Holy Father, I hope I've been able just from my own life, and my own experience, I, just as Paul, I think, was doing by the inspiration of your spirit here to Sure, I I do understand the battle that we have. I have it too. Paul had it. We all have it. The only person that's ever had perfect victory in this battle is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And he's the only one who can help us overcome sin because he's the only one who's ever done it. He's the only one who knows what it's like to experience every single temptation all the way through and not give in. And he's the only hope we have of victory, the same kind of victory in our lives. Help us, I pray, Lord, to cling to Christ, to walk in the Spirit, to submit to the Spirit as we find his will in your word, not trusting in our own efforts, but in the power of your Spirit to give us victory and peace. Holy Father, for anyone here who's struggled with some besetting sin, I pray that today would be the day that he or she would say, I'm going to quit dwelling on the sin and start looking for those victories, however momentary and fleeting they may have seemed to me, and I'm going to praise God for those victories, and I'm going to allow myself to be filled with confidence that I can have more of those victories. Looking away from myself and trusting in Him, looking to Him and seeing what He's done and His power, and trusting Him for more of that. I pray that today would be a day of greater victory for them. For each one of us, for anyone who has not yet come to know Christ as His or Her Savior, it's my prayer that today He or She would say, in one way or another, I've always trusted myself, and it ain't working. I'm a sinner. And every time I think about living righteously, I'm just condemned by the word of God. And I want to be free from that. I want to trust in Christ alone to save me from my sins. I want to leave off trusting in the flesh and have that first great victory that you promised through faith in Christ. The victory of repentance and salvation and forgiveness through Jesus Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone. Lord, if anyone trusts in you in this way, I pray that he or she would just go to another Christian in this room because we're all here capable of helping them and ask for help in their Christian walk. We ask all these things for your glory, as always, and for our good. And in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. I thank you once again for your kind attentions.